Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm Donna Stair. This is the fourth and final season of our week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. Join us for this final season as we're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, stay tuned and stay cool. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another WKRP cast. We've got a lot of self-reflection going on this week. What is our episode, Donna? We're talking about changes. The air date was February 3rd, 1982. Written by P.J. Tarakvi as Peter Tarakvi. Executive story consultant, Lisa Levin. Directed by Will McKenzie. Herb decides it's time for a change in his wardrobe, and he enlists Jennifer to help him. Meanwhile, Venus is worried about being black enough as he prepares for an interview with Black Life magazine. If you're checking air dates on IMDb, this is another one that changed based on the work of Michael Hernandez, the accountant of rock. He's been scanning local TV listings to get the real story about what ran when. According to Michael's research, this episode, Changes, actually aired on February 3rd of 1982. It was originally listed as airing last Wednesday on January 27th. This change may have been due to a news preemption. On January 27th, CBS ran a special news report called A Conversation with the President. It ran in the 8 o'clock hour. In case you're keeping score, WKRP gets destroyed this week in the time slot. Real People over on NBC wins the hour hands down. Greatest American Hero on ABC takes second. Believe it or not, it's just me. And WKRP is a very distant third. The title of this one is a single word. Changes is a perfect title for this episode all on its own, but as we've seen with so many WKRP titles, we're betting there's outside inspiration. This might be a nod to the 1972 David Bowie classic of the same name. Although the original release of the single only peaked at number 66 on the U.S. Hot 100, it has become one of Bowie's signature tunes. It's appeared on eight Bowie compilation albums and in numerous soundtracks. The enduring power of this song to speak to alienated teens cannot be understated. It was used as the epigraph to John Hughes' 1985 movie, The Breakfast Club, he quotes the phrase, And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Changes was ranked at number 200 on the 2021 revised list of Rolling Stone Magazine's 
500 Greatest Songs of All Time. We've got a special guest with us for this one, fellow babies. That handsome young devil playing the reporter from Black Life magazine is none other than comedian Tom Dreesen. Tom has a special tie to Tim Reed. They were comedy partners for more than six years. Known as Tim and Tom, they were the world's first interracial comedy team. Tom was kind enough to talk to us about the episode and his good friend, Mr. Tim Reed. One of our first questions was, hey, do you think you could get Tim to join us? I don't know what it is, Alan, but he's not interested in doing podcasts. He, he gets off and he said he turned down three today. Uh, he, I don't know. He just doesn't. So Tim didn't show, but Tom was great. We had an extended discussion about everything from the early days with Tim to why it's so hard to get the info right on a Wikipedia page. We will be including several of Tom's comments throughout today's show. Tom first met Tim when they were both members of the JCs in the Chicago area. Tom was selling insurance. Tim was working for DuPont in marketing. In 1968, Tom wanted to create an anti-drug program to take into schools. He wound up partnering with Tim. The two created a model program which was used the world over by the JCs. The kids loved the pair. They were funny and relatable. Neither Tim nor Tom had showbiz aspirations, but wow, they were funny. So funny, after one performance, a student noticed. One day, a little eighth grade girl walking out of the classroom said, Tim and I, you guys are so funny, you ought to become a comedy team. And from an eighth grade girl, her name is Vicki Sarufka. We, we, we've been known her to this day. In 1969, the duo graduated from eighth grade to adult audiences. It wasn't easy. Tim and Tom were spreading their message of comedy and racial harmony during the late 1960s. Race relations in the U.S. were tense, to say the least. Anywhere there was racial tension, we went there. Uh, high schools, colleges. Uh, we didn't preach. We just tried to make people laugh. We did 13 prisons in one year. We did at the county jail in Chicago three times. Anywhere there was racial tension, that's where we went. And again, we didn't preach. We were just trying to make them laugh. I can't tell you, at that time, everywhere in America, they said, you know, we need more discourse among the races. We need more, we need better race relations. Or Tim and Tom, Tim Reed and Tom Dreesen were having a discourse America wasn't having. On stage, we were having race relations. If you're going to have good race relations, you got to have race relations. And that's what WKRP was obviously about in so many episodes. But Tim and I were doing that years before that. On stage. Tom said they did hit on racial issues as a part of their act, but they weren't a one-trick pony. Our act wasn't all about race. It was about so many different things, but it, it, it didn't have to be because one guy was black and one guy was white, and no one had ever done that in show business before. There were a lot of hills to climb and some very difficult performance situations, but in the end, Tom said it was truly worth it. To this day, what I feel most grateful about I can't tell you how many times after one of our shows that a young black kid would come up to us and say to Tim, you know, I got a white friend that I'd like to reach out to. But if I do, the brothers are going to wear me out. But after watching you and Tom today, I'm going to reach out to my white friend. Then a white kid would come up and say, you know, I've got a black friend that I, I really like. But if I do, the, the white guys, if I reach out to him, the white guys are going to call me names. But after watching you and, and, and Tim today, I'm going to 
reach out to my black friend. Even though Tim and Tom would stop performing as an act in 1974, Tom says he still feels the impact of their partnership today. We're, we're, we're like brothers. I love Tim to death. He's everything I have, um, everything I own, everything that I become in my life is because I met Tim. And Tim will tell you the same thing. It totally changed the course of our life. I had no thought of ever being in show business. It was the furthest thing from my mind. And Tim, the same way. We were salesmen. I worked for an insurance company, and Tim worked for EI DuPont. EI DuPont recruited him out of college in Chicago. And, and uh, so everything that I have, all my dreams have come true, all my personal financials, but it's because I met Tim Reed. Although Tim loved doing bits and even did some stand-up as a solo act in the mid-70s, Tom says he could tell where Tim was heading even when they were doing the act. Far more of an actor than as a stand-up. You know, he, he, uh, Tim was always, in our comedy routines, Tim was a great actor. You know, he's a good actor. And, 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 and both of us were, you know, doing acting and certain sketches that we did and then sometimes just being ourselves, you know. Uh, but he was more pursuing the acting career at that time. Tom knew he was destined to be a stand-up comic. He even said he feels it's why he was put on Earth. Tim, not so much. We, we were both on our own track, but we always stayed in touch. I mean, we were never mad at one another. We're never in, like any comedy team when we were together. We had our differences and we have creative differences. And we'd have arguments, you know, sometimes uh, in many, a couple of them in the book, a real heated argument one night, uh, uh, creative argument. Never, it was never about race. It was about creativity. But um, when he got Tim and Tom, I mean, we would, I, I, when he got um, WKRP, you know, uh, I knew that this was another break for him. And if you want to know all about this groundbreaking comedy team, make sure to read the excellent book authored by both Tim Reed and Tom Dreesen with Ron Rappaport called Tim and Tom, an American comedy in black and white. We'll have more from Tom when we get to his scenes, but now... Let's get into the episode. We begin this episode with a Bob Girding exterior shot of the Cincinnati Inquirer, a.k.a. the Flim Building. We hear Johnny's theme music playing as the camera zooms in to the 14th floor. In the morning, yeah. We first heard Johnny's morning jingle when Rex Earhart played it while filling in during the episode Rumors. The music transitions to Magnolia by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. We cut to a shot looking into the studio hallway from outside the window. Bailey and Les are looking out. Bailey is in one of her contemplative moods. It's funny, looking at all these people. Have you ever wondered what makes someone what they are? Johnny comes out of the studio. He walks up behind Bailey looking over her shoulder. Nothing catches his interest, so he continues on without a word. It looks like he's headed for more coffee. Have you ever wondered why Russian women look like men? Bailey tells him she really hadn't noticed. Les, not surprisingly, has a theory. I think they kidnap men from all over the world, take them to Moscow, and turn them into Russian women. And again with the sex change operations, Bailey is smiling. Do you? <laughs> That's what I think happened to Jimmy Hoffa. By now, he's probably a grandmother in the Ukraine. <laughs> and now, a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now, here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nessman. 
just above right temple. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cob award-winning journalist Les Nessman. The song we're hearing on the air is called Magnolia. It was a track on Tom Petty's second album, You're Gonna Get It. This was the 1978 follow-up to the Heartbreakers' 1976 self-titled debut. There were two singles off Get It, I Need to Know and Listen to Her Heart, would peak at 41 and 59 on the Hot 100. Magnolia was never released as a single. Petty's next album, 1979's Damn the Torpedoes, would be the band's breakthrough. It included Don't Do Me Like That and Refugee. Les really seems to be preoccupied with the fate of Teamsters labor leader Jimmy Hoffa. He's mentioned Hoffa before. Jimmy Hoffa was last seen at a restaurant outside of Detroit in the summer of 1975. For our take on the Jimmy Hoffa story, check our podcast covering the Union episode. Andy walks up behind Bailey and Les. Looking over Bailey's shoulder, he startles them. What are you looking at? (laughs) Bailey and Les both jump. There's a man in the building over there on the 16th floor who's exercising the nude again. Andy clears his throat and then asks, Seen Venus? Nude? (laughs) No, just around. Les tells Andy he thinks Venus is in the bullpen arguing with Herb. Andy walks away as Bailey adds, Or else he's in Russia being turned into a ballerina. (laughs) Andy looks at Bailey and Les. He's not quite sure what they're talking about. I'll check the bullpen. (laughs) Andy pauses before going into the bullpen, and we get a look at the wall behind him. It's time for a hallway poster watch. Yay! First off, if you look through the doorway at the end of the hall, you can see an oversized poster for Neil Young's 1981 album, Reactor. This was Canadian rocker Young's 11th studio album and his fourth with U.S. band, Crazy Horse. Young and Crazy Horse had most recently collaborated on the 1979 album, Live Rust. Reactor is only eight tracks and runs about 39 minutes. There were no hits and no chart action. It's only rated at two out of five stars on all music. The most notable thing about Reactor, it marks Neil's first use of the Synclavier digital synthesizer. He would use it extensively on trans the next year. To the left of Andy is a poster for the 1981 Emmy Lou Harris album Cimarron. This was a collection of outtakes from recording sessions that didn't quite fit into any of Harris's other albums. Emmy Lou is a country performer, and this album would yield three country hits. She had scored a minor pop hit on her last album with a version of Mr. Sandman. This poster may have wound up here on WKRP because this album will go to number 46 on the U.S. Billboard Top 200 album chart. To Andy's right, the man holding the violin is Jean-Luc Ponty. This is a promo for his 1980 album, Civilized Evil. Ponty is a French jazz fusion violinist. We heard the cut Happy Robot off this album during a Venus talk bit in I Am Woman. It will only go to number 73 on the Billboard album chart, but like most of Ponty's titles, it will dominate the jazz charts. 
This one peaks at number three on the Billboard Jazz Chart. Andy enters the bullpen from the studio hallway door to find Venus sitting at the DJ's desk. He's in a heated conversation with Herb, who's gesturing wildly. And would you get a look at Herb? It's an oldie but a goodie, but it's time! Herb Darlick, fashion alert! Herb is wearing a jacket that we've seen before. It is a plaid jacket with blue, red, yellow, and green lines, a white dress shirt with a maroon tie with white dots. The pants are new. The pants are weird. (laughs) They are white polyester with light brown designs that look like hieroglyphics all over them. He's wearing his white belt and white shoes. It's the Mr. Potato Head look. (laughs) Just grab pieces out of the closet and throw them on. I'm nuts. Hey, Hang on a second. No, we're talking about a style, a look, a statement. Herb is motioning to his outfit as he says this. They seem to be arguing about Herb's clothes. Venus chuckles. Okay, what is that outfit supposed to be saying? Travis is trying to get Venus's attention, but Herb tells Andy to hang on a minute. What is it saying? I'll tell you what it's saying. It's saying, trust me. Sign my deal. I know what I'm doing. Herb is running his hands down the coat as he talks. Andy tries again to get Venus's attention. Just a minute. You want to know what it's saying to me? Yeah. Do not adjust your set. Andy's still trying to talk to Venus, but these guys are fired up. Excuse me. Do not adjust your set. Well, I thought you black guys knew how to dress. We do. Andy finally gets a word in. You guys are talking about clothes? Herb tells Andy they are discussing looks. I waited while you argued about clothes. Look, style is important, Andrew. Clothes, Herb? You are what you wear. You are. Darn right. <laughs> Herb leaves through the door, leading to the studio hallway. Venus turns to Andy. Why don't you make him dress better? Okay. Why don't you loan him your pirate outfit? Venus looks at Andy with a serious expression. Privacy, I dress like that because I'm in show business. I got a public to consider. Andy walks around to the other side of Venus. That comeback cracked me up that you are what you wear. Venus, <laughs> what you are. <laughs> you are. <laughs> so Andy begins searching his pockets. Just got a call from your public. Probably by the name of uh, Rick. Uh, Jesperson wants to interview you for Black Life magazine. Must talk to you while you're on the air. I told him to come tonight. He comes up with a message that he hands to Venus. Venus is reluctant, and he tells him the station needs some ink. Venus wants to know what the guy's going to ask him. I don't know. He said he wants to do a piece on black PJs. Venus looks a little concerned about this. What do you mean? What do you mean? What do I mean? I think he means DJs were black. Venus studies the paper. He's still looking bothered. Black Life magazine's pretty militant, Andy. Who shall I have him talk to, Herb? Venus tells Andy, no. You'll be an inspiration to black kids everywhere. Andy pats Venus on the back. Herb comes back into the bullpen just as Andy mentions Venus being an inspiration. Herb asks how. Andy says Venus is going to be interviewed for the press. Uh-oh. Look out for those reporters. They'll tear you to pieces. Herb's had a seat at his desk. He begins playing with his pencils. I mean, they already have their minds made up, you know? I mean, then they just come right in here and go, put the hatchet right in your back. Herb reminds them of the interview he gave last year. They killed me. Herb, for some reason, is taping pencils together (laughs) as they talk. 
He's got three of them in a bunch, and he's wrapping them with scotch tape. Venus tells Herb he's not trying to hide anything. Wasn't trying to hide anything. Come on, Herbert, you were trying to pretend you were something you're not. Human. <laughs> Herb shoots a look at both Andy and Venus. In a larger sense, aren't we all trying to pretend to be something that we're not? Whoa, Herb is casually throwing out some heavy life philosophy. He starts writing with those three pencils he has taped together. It appears to be some kind of an office art project. And in fact, isn't that what it is that makes us human? Venus is a little stunned at Herb's insight. He asks where he got that speech. Read it on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and as Venus and Andy marvel at Herb's literary prowess, we head into our theme. WKRP in Cincinnati. We come back from commercial and an entirely new set for this scene. This is our first time in the WKRP Record Library. Since it's a record library, we've got posters. It's time for our first ever Record Library Poster Watch. Yay! On the door to the library to the far left of the shot is a poster for the Rolling Stones' American tour to support Tattoo You. This poster is very stylized and entirely drawn. Five of the Stones' lips logos are flying into the frame from the right, zipping past a caricature of the Statue of Liberty. Across the top is 1981, and at the bottom it says the Rolling Stones' American Tour, presented by Jovan. You can find this poster on eBay for about 20 bucks, or you could go to collectible site Cherish, C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H, they're offering this poster for $624. And that's after a 15% discount off the regular $735 price tag. They must have the very special posters. They got the first one, or I don't know. I don't know. It, I thought maybe it's signed. You know, there might be autographs yeah. on it or something. But nope, it's just a regular old poster. It is framed. But still, it's, it's close to 700 bucks. Checking a few random wall decorations, on the wall between the shelves is the Pretenders poster. We've seen this one in the studio, in the studio hallway, and now in the record library. On the end of the shelf is the John Lennon portrait like what we've seen in the studio. A small clip of the Blues Brothers picture from the soundtrack album is also visible on the end of the other shelf. Down low, under the Blues Brothers, is a headshot of Stevie Wonder. Jeff Beck is still carrying his guitar, this time across the back wall. There's a strip above Jeff to the left of the shelves that says, Sad Cafe. This is a reference to a song title from the Eagles album, The Long Run. Under this sad cafe strip is a promo banner for the second studio album from U.S. jazz bassist John Francis Anthony Jocko Pistorius. Wow, what a name. Yeah, it's quite a name, but he's shortened it all down to just Jocko. <laughs> Called Word of Mouth, it was released in July of 1981 while Jocko was still a member of The Weather Report. No hits or chart action for this one, but it does have a kind of interesting story. The first 50,000 copies of this album were issued without credits for any of the musicians. Due to a contract lawsuit with Warner Brothers, CBS told Pistorius they would not be listing some of the names of the lesser-known musicians who had played on the album. Pistorius defiantly said if they don't get listed, nobody gets listed. 
Pistorius got his way initially, but CBS quietly added the names back on later copies. If you've got one of those first 50,000 without any of the names on it, it is a minor collectible. The song So White and So Funky by Tom Scott with vocals by Dr. John is playing over the monitor. We see Johnny and Venus organizing albums in the record library as they talk. You know what bugs me about her? <laughs> is this a test? <laughs> Sometimes he says stuff that seems like it makes sense, and then I realize it's her that's saying it. Johnny tells Venus he's heard he's about to become famous. Yeah, and inspired black kids all over America. Oh, why just black kids? Because white kids don't want to grow up to be black DJs. <laughs> I did. We've met both saxophonist Tom Scott and Dr. John in previous episodes. The cut we're hearing, So White and So Funky, comes from Tom Scott's 1981 album, Apple Juice. We also heard the instrumental cut, Getting Up, from this album in the episode Rumors. This song was written by Tom Scott and Rob Preston. Now, Scott is a sax player, not a singer. Since this one had lyrics, Scott brought in session monster Dr. John to add the vocals. One day I heard a soul band on the radio. And some inside of me just let go. I said, how can I be so white? And so funky. Dr. John, whose real name is Malcolm John Rebenack Jr., appeared as a session performer on more than a thousand outside projects throughout his career. Bailey comes into the record library looking for Venus. She tells him the writer from Black Life magazine called to say he would be there at 4 p.m. Bailey turns to leave and then turns back to ask them a question. Have you guys noticed how you can't tell what color somebody is on the phone? Venus says, I guess. That's right, stereotype thinking. I mean, when I heard Black Life, I was expecting, Say, Mama, you tell the dude I'll be here at four. <laughs> but he didn't. He sounded just like you. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> Bailey nods her head toward Venus as she says this. Venus is looking at Bailey with a strange grin on his face. He's chuckling quietly. Bailey says she'll see them later and leaves. Jan with the dialects. <laughs> Not very good, though. Not great, but still, she's trying. <laughs> she sounded like a, a southern belle trying to be tough. That's what she sounded like. <laughs> oh, and hey, as Bailey heads out the record library door, we get another poster on the far wall out in the hallway. This is the very cool cover to the King's album, Amazon Beach. This was the second album from the Toronto-based rock quartet led by singer Dave Diamond. If you know the Kings, you probably know them for one thing, the minor 1980 hit, Switchin' to Glide. Nothing matters but the weekend. From a Tuesday point of view. was a track from their first album. There would be no chart action from Amazon Beach. The cool cover art for this one came about because the band had heard about the production of a possible animated feature film 
from Fantasy Magazine, Heavy Metal. The Kings were hoping to be chosen for the soundtrack. Although they didn't provide any tracks for the eventual film, they were inspired by the superhero comics motif for their cover. Venus turns to Johnny. What does she mean sounding just like me? I'm black. I can say folk. <laughs> Johnny comes out from behind a record shelf so he can see Venus. He slips into a heavy, affected accent. That's right, Kingfish. You is. And you does. But the problem is, you sound neutral. Neutral. You mean white. Well, man, I've, I've heard you say upside your head, stuff like that. Don't worry. You can pass for black. I don't want to pass for black I want to be black What the hell am I saying? Venus confesses to Johnny He doesn't want to do the interview Johnny referenced Kingfish Kingfish was a character on the radio show And later TV show Amos and Andy To even consider the idea of Amos and Andy In the 21st century is beyond cringeworthy at the time of its debut in 1928, it was considered can't-miss comedy. The show was created by white actors Freeman Gosden and Charles Carell for Chicago radio station WMAQ. Both men were from North Carolina, where they were familiar with minstrel shows and minstrel traditions. The characters of Amos and Andy, voiced by Gosden and Carell, were African-American farmhands from Atlanta who moved to Chicago to make a better life for themselves. When the show went nationwide, the setting would be moved from Chicago to New York's Harlem District. And Andy, Andy, will you please come on? Wait a minute, Amos. What's going on here? It's the Amos and Andy Show. Gosden and Carell voiced the main characters and dozens of minor characters as broad, overly affected black stereotypes. Amos was naive, but honest. Andy was a gullible dreamer. The two joined the mystic Knights of the Sea Lodge, headed by perpetual schemer George Kingfish Stevens. And so, Kingfish, in a nutshell, there's the mess I is in. I can't get the shirts back in time. Yeah, see what you mean there, Brother Andy, but how does this concern me? Well, I want you to help me, Kingfish, because I know you is like a eel when it comes to squirming out of things like this. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you, and uh, yeah, I've done some high-class wiggling in my day. Kingfish's catchphrase, holy mackerel, quickly entered the American lexicon. Backlash to the show began with protests from black leaders as early as 1930. This didn't slow its popularity a bit. The serial was aired nightly from 1928 through 1943. It was so popular it would regularly garner a more than 50% share of all radios in the country. It was the first syndicated radio show and could be heard coast to coast on NBC starting in 1930. This is the National Broadcasting Company. An estimated 40 million were tuning in to each night's 15-minute program. There was a 1930 movie called Check and Double Check starring Gosden and Carell in blackface. The title was a reference to a regular phrase used on the show. Audiences didn't know the radio performers were white. When the movie came out, the public was surprised to see these white men in blackface. The movie was a huge failure, but the radio show and an eventual TV show starring black actors would continue until 1960. 
Although the overt racism in Amos and Andy is embarrassing to look back on, this series is credited with creating the structure and tone for future working man comedies, including The Honeymooners, All in the Family, and Sanford and Son. Johnny asks why he doesn't want to do the interview. Venus says reporters come with preconceived notions. And before you know they put a hatchet in your back. Johnny looks at Venus. Who told you that? Her. <laughs> Guy? <laughs> Johnny keeps looking at Venus. Who? Just a guy I know. Besides, man, I've been up here with you white folks so long, I forgot what black America's all about. All I know is what I see on the Jeffersons. And that guy's gonna know that. He's gonna nail me. Are you saying that the Jeffersons is not an accurate portrait of black America? Venus tells Johnny to go ahead and joke, but he's the guy who'll get the hatchet in the back. Venus mentioned the Jeffersons. The Jeffersons was the most successful spinoff from All in the Family. George and Louise Wheezy Jefferson had been neighbors to the bunkers before George's chain of dry cleaners took off. He and the whole family were able to move out of Queens to 63rd Street in Manhattan. The story of their move was presented on an All in the Family episode. The first episode of The Jeffersons then premiered the following week. Well, we're moving on. Hemsley played George. Isabel Sanford was Wheezy. The series ran for a total of 11 seasons and racked up 253 episodes. Johnny tells Venus to relax. Talk a lot of jive, run the dozens on the cat, and uh, don't mention your Slim Whitman collection. Venus makes a shocked sound at this. <laughs> <laughs> I love that sound. <laughs> He tells Johnny he doesn't have any Slim Whitman records. Johnny tells him to just relax and, whoa, hold on a minute here. We have to unpack some stuff from Johnny's last talk bit. First off, who's Slim Whitman? Otis Dewey Slim Whitman was an American country music singer, songwriter, yodeler, and <laughs> guitarist. He had a high, breathy voice, a crooner's style, and he punctuated many of his songs with yodeling breaks. Whitman started touring in 1945 and recording in 1948. He was discovered and managed by Colonel Tom Parker nine years before Parker would meet Elvis. Whitman had a string of top ten country hits in the U.S. throughout the 50s and 60s. Never more than minorly popular in America, Whitman would become a legend in the UK. In 1955, he hit the number one spot on the UK pop charts with the theme to the operetta Rose Marie. It would stay at number one for 11 weeks. Oof. Of all the queens that ever lived, I choose you to ruin me, my Donna's getting another Bud Light. She usually goes through about four of them in a show. (laughs) 
Whitman would not become a household name in the United States until 1979. That year, he produced a TV commercial to support his greatest hits compilation called All My Best. It would go on to sell 1.5 million <laughs> units and become the second best-selling TV album in history. In 1980, Whitman returned to TV pitching his album, Just For You. In that commercial, they made this stunning claim. This international recording star had the number one record in England for more weeks than any singer in history, even Elvis and the Beatles. Although many viewers dismissed these claims as hype, the proof was listed right there in the Guinness Book of World Records. Whitman's amazing 11-week record would stand for 36 years. Brian Adams finally beat him in 1991. Whitman went back to the TV well again in the late 80s, but he would never experience the incredible success of his 1979 and 1980 TV titles. He even got a first-ever spot on The Tonight Show in 1980 entirely on the basis of his TV commercials. Whitman continued to tour into the early 2000s. His last studio album was Twilight on the Trail from 2010. Whitman, who was originally from Tampa, Florida, would die at his home in Orange Park, Florida in 2013 at the age of 90. So he was 87 when he did... Did his last album. Yeah. He did not tour on that one. I don't blame him. <laughs> Johnny also mentioned running the dozens on The Interviewer. If Venus is worried about being black, Johnny's right. The dozens is about as black as it gets. It's a game found almost exclusively in African-American communities. The dozens was first identified by name in print in 1939 by Yale social theorist John Dollard. He described the game and its importance among African-American men. The dozens is played by two people, usually men, who insult each other. They keep insulting back and forth until one feels bested and gives up. The Dozens is played exclusively for an audience. The audience's role is to egg on the two participants, pushing them to greater degrees of insult. The Dozens is where your mama's so fat or you're so dumb insults come from. The Dozens normally does not touch on sexual issues. When it does, those rounds are called the Dirty Dozens. Sociologist Harry Lefevre and journalist John Leland studied and wrote about the dozens. They claim the dozens is played almost exclusively by African Americans because other ethnic groups don't get it. Others will take the remark seriously or become offended. Dozens players never get mad. The end of a dozen session usually involves handshakes and hugs. There are no hard feelings after being put into the dozens. Social researchers say verbal skill and wit are valued as highly as physical strength in the African-American community. The dozens is like a workout. Playing builds mental acuity and word proficiency. Dozens players have to think fast on their feet and in a pressure situation in front of an audience. Being witty and able to drop a devastating insult can be what separates the men from the boys. It's no wonder many of the most popular rap artists were skilled dozens players when they were younger. Also, stand-up comics. 
Kevin Hart and Chris Rock, both known to be really, really devastating dozens players. Yeah, those guys will kill you. Suddenly we hear Art's voice. Uh, Venus, could I say something? Venus and Johnny are looking around the room trying to figure out where Carlson's voice is coming from. Venus asks where he is. Art comes walking out from a dark corner of the room. And whoa, it's a poster overload. As Carlson steps from behind the furthest stack of records, we get a new angle on the record library. We can now see the right wall. There's Ringo Starr's October of 1981 solo album, Stop and Smell the Roses. Under Ringo is former bandmate John Lennon with an oversized promo cover for Double Fantasy. And there's the German synth-pop outfit Kraftwerk again. Art apologizes, saying he overheard their conversation. Sounds to me like you're worrying too much about color and forgetting the most important thing. Which is? That you're a, a fine person with an interesting job, right, John? It's not that interesting, I say. <laughs> Venus thanks Carlson, and Art starts towards the door to leave. But Johnny stops him. Could I ask just what you were doing in the record library? Hunting for old guy Lombardo records and smoking dope. Oh. <laughs> Carson walks out the door, leaving Johnny and Venus looking stunned and sniffing the air. Mr. Carlson mentioned Guy Lombardo. Guy was a Canadian-American band leader born in London, Ontario in 1902. Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians will forever hold a place in the zeitgeist for their annual performance of All Dang Syne on New Year's Eve. day, Guy's recording of the tune is the first song played in New York's Times Square after the ball drops on New Year's Eve. Guy passed away in November of 1977 at the age of 75. Interesting Guy Lombardo trivia, in addition to being a band leader and violinist, Guy was also a hydroplane racer. We cut to the lobby where Herb is talking to Jennifer. He's standing in front of her with his arms open wide. We jump right into the middle of their conversation. That's ridiculous. Sure it is, but you have to eat, so let's eat together. If we were together, I don't think I could eat. Hart walks into the lobby and Herb hurries over to him. Big guy, I can explain everything. Explain what? Nothing. Man, talk about a guilty conscience. <laughs> the only time Mr. Carlson ever wants to see him, he's usually in trouble. wrong, yeah. <laughs> Carlson asks Herb if he has a client coming in this afternoon. He tells Carlson, Run and Son Emporiums is coming in at 4. Jennifer asks, What's Run and Son? Mr. Carlson tells her it is a fascinating new idea from California. You know how everyone's into this health thing, you know, running and looking tanned? Well, this place has treadmills. So you can run on them inside tanning booths. Run and sun. Get it? Herb tells Jennifer it's going to be all over the city. Mr. Carlson tells Herb not to blow this one. Big guy, you know you can trust me. Oh, and by the way, right about here, we get a full-length look at Herb. Those pants are insane. Who would buy those? Herb. (laughs) Oh, man. So Herb's running son idea sounded familiar. Comedy writers in the 80s liked to combine tanning with some other activity. As soon as we heard this one, it reminded us of another tanning sitcom storyline. 
In a November 1986 episode of Cheers, Norm invests in a hot new business called Tannin Wash. Norman? It's a combined tanning studio and laundromat. Put your clothes in for a cycle and hop on the tanning bed. Throw in some treadmills for the dryer, and we've got a winner. Andy enters the lobby. He asks Mr. Carlson if he wanted to see him. Yes, a matter of fact, I did. I want you to impress upon Herb how important it is that he sign new clients. Andy turns and looks at Herb, who is standing behind him. And he asks Mr. Carlson why he doesn't tell Herb himself. Oh, well, I can do that now because Herb's here, but he wasn't here when I sent for you. I was going to tell you to tell him, then I left. And of course, when I got back, uh, Herb was here, and I, I couldn't tell him, though, because you said, did you send for me? And I answered you, and so there you go. Well, so now what? Well, I don't know. Oh, man, that was confusing. A glimpse inside Art's <laughs> head can be a little scary. <laughs> Venus comes into the lobby and asks, what's going on? Uh, Mr. Carlson was just explaining nuclear physics to us. <laughs> Andy asks Venus if he wants to go to lunch, but Venus tells him he can't. He's got to get ready for the interview. What's what's to get ready? Andy asks Carlson if he would like to get some lunch. Well, I can. I'm having lunch with my minister. Andy looks at Jennifer. Uh, no, I can't afford you, and I can't afford to be seen with Herb, so I guess I'll just forget about lunch all <laughs> Andy heads to the bullpen. Herb slowly walks up behind Jennifer. She has returned to reading a rather large book with a big U on the cover. What Jennifer's reading is Ulysses by Irish writer James Joyce. Originally published as a serial over the course of two and a half years, it was first published in its entirety in Paris in February of 1922 on Joyce's 40th birthday. This novel is considered the most important work of modernist literature in one of the greatest literary works in history. Ulysses chronicles the appointments and encounters of an itinerant in Dublin named Leopold Bloom. The reader follows Bloom over the course of an ordinary day, June 16th of 1904. The novel uses puns, parodies, allusions, and rich characterization. The book has attracted controversy, scrutiny, and diehard loyalty since its release. Joyce fans the world over, possibly including Jennifer Marlowe, still celebrate June 16th each year as Bloom Day. As Jennifer gets back into her book, you can see Herb silently rehearsing what he's going to say. Jennifer? Jennifer jumps. <laughs> How long have you been behind me? All my life. <laughs> Are you familiar with the term mercy lunch? <laughs> Jennifer slowly turns to look at Herb. There's a quick cut to an overhead shot in a restaurant. We've got a plant in the foreground and a lattice surrounding a private-looking table. This setup has kind of the same look as the dinner scene between these two in Daydreams. It also looks a little like the dinner setup in Jennifer and the Will. We get a very cool Dolly Crane move down to where Herb is sitting at the table with Jennifer. A waiter is just clearing plates. Herb has a crazy wild grin on his face. 
can't believe you're really here. Jennifer tells Herb to calm down. Everybody has seen me eating with you. Herb is smiling and waving at people. He's giving them finger guns as he winks. I mean, I come here all the time. I, I know these people. I know these people. Herb can't sit still. He's bouncing in his chair and waving his arms around. Jennifer tells Herb to be careful just as he knocks a glass of wine into his lap. Herb is silent for a second with a stunned look on his face. No problem. He then slowly lowers his napkin into his lap and starts to dab at the spilled wine. They're both silent. Frank Bonner's face is hilarious as he applies pressure to his wine-soaked crotch. We also get a cut to Jennifer's great look of horror mixed with disgust. It's my best outfit, though. It is? Frank is so funny. (laughs) It's his best outfit. Putting that napkin down below the edge of the table. And you can see he's pushing down and his look on his face. face Oh, it's a riot. So Herb asks Jennifer if he can ask her something. She tells him okay. I I know this is going to sound kind of weird to you, but uh, lately I've been thinking that, well, that people have been laughing at me. (laughs) Jennifer is stunned, but listening intently. I think they find my clothes a little funny. Herb tells Jennifer he spends a lot of money on clothes. That's a shock. And he tries (laughs) to make a statement. What do you think? The waiter brings the check to the table. Mr. Tarmac, your check. (laughs) Herb corrects him. The waiter tells Jennifer it's really been nice having her here. The guys in the... (laughs) The guys in the kitchen say hi. Hi back. Herb has opened his wallet and an accordion of credit cards comes spilling out, (laughs) reaching to the floor. Herb hands the check along with a card to the waiter and tells him to keep it moving. Oh, I my stomach. I get all sick to my stomach <laughs> thinking of his credit card debt. <laughs> credit card debt. He's sitting there with credit card debt and a, and a wet crotch. It's, it's bad all the way around. <laughs> the waiter is being played by Jim Hardy. We checked into Jim and got confused. If you follow the link from this episode to the guy named Jim Hardy on IMDb, he's got a total of three acting credits. This one on WKRP in 1982, then a couple of B-movies in 1994 and 1995. This seemed odd, so we did a bit more searching. Turns out there's also a guy listed on IMDb under the name James Hardy, same spelling of the last name, and working during the same years. On the alternate names line, it said this James would also go by the name Jim Hardy, Could this be the same guy? James Hardy had 26 acting credits, starting with the 1979 Quincy M.E. appearance. He had all the usuals, and a lot of his guest-starring roles were on MTM shows. James Hardy was listed as a guest star on a 1982 episode of Newhart, which happened to be available on YouTube. We checked it out, and yep, James and Jim are the same guy. He's got longer hair and a full beard and mustache in the Newhart episode, but he's definitely the same guy. So if you combine the bios of both James and Jim Hardy, you've got a total of 29 acting credits over the course of 26 years. The waiter leaves. Jennifer leans toward her. Do you know what you need? 
Sure I do, but you keep turning me down. (laughs) Jennifer tells Herb he needs a new image, a whole new look. Not that you need a new look so much, but change is always exciting, don't you think? And I think I am the person to give you a new image. Herb gets this vacant look in his eyes. I've waited for this. (laughs) (laughs) The waiter has returned. Jennifer tells Herb she's talking about his wardrobe. She knows a tailor near here. I'm going to redo you just like I redid the lobby. You're going to look great. What do you say? Herb has signed the check and he hands it back to the waiter who leaves. Herb looks at Jennifer with his brows furrowed. As long as I don't look like a room. (laughs) They stand to leave. Herb hurries over to Jennifer's side. He has a big, excited grin on his face. I want everybody to see me leaving with you. Walking out on my arm like this. This is my proudest moment. They begin to walk through the restaurant, Herb's head held high. The camera cuts to a wide shot, and we see a huge red stain (laughs) right in the middle of Herb's crotch where he spilled that wine earlier. And Jennifer has her arm hooked in his, and her head is down. down She's trying not to look to anybody. She's almost putting her hand up in front of her face. The reveal of Herb's stain relied on a little editing trick. If you think about how it was revealed to the live audience, you realize they'd have seen it several seconds earlier than we did. As soon as Herb stood, the studio audience would have seen and most likely reacted to the huge stain on his pants. Instead, the reaction held off until the cut to the wide shot, when the home viewer is allowed to see the stain. That's when the audience reaction can be heard. Since we know WKRP tapes twice on Friday, once with a studio audience and once to an empty theater, this is an easy edit. What we saw was the no audience take. Herb was able to stand in silence without a big audience reaction during the close-up. Then the sound from the reveal to the live audience was dubbed in when they cut to the wide shot. As Herb and Jennifer leave the restaurant, the scene fades to a commercial break. Mr. Tarmac, your check. We come back from commercial break in the bullpen. Jennifer opens the main door with a flourish. Lady and gentlemen, I would like to present my latest creation, introducing the new H.R. Tarlick Jr. Herb walks in. And I believe... It's time! Herb Tarlick, sharp-dressed man. Herb is wearing a stylish and conservative three-piece charcoal gray suit with a white dress shirt and a dark blue pocket square. The outfit is completed with a maroon and gray tie and shiny black dress shoes. He has a gold watch chain hanging from his vest pocket. Herb looks good. Herb shoots his cuffs and rocks back and forth nervously. He's smiling at Johnny and Bailey. Really good, Jennifer. It's very lifelike. (laughs) (laughs) Herb turns to Bailey and asks what she thinks. She instantly becomes a smitten Southern Belle. My, 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 I can hardly breathe. Why, Mr. Tolley, have you been lunching at the club? Well, you are not to make a poor girl just swoon right away. Herb giggles, liking this attention. Jan with more dialect work. <laughs> I do look rather good, don't I? Is he programmed for polo? 
Venus strides into the bullpen. He appears to have gotten ready for this interview. <laughs> What's happening? Now, let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is wearing skin-tight gold lame pants tucked into black knee-high pirate boots, a muscle man-style leotard, and a cream-colored vest with fringe all around the bottom and off of the sleeves. They're short sleeves. There's a large parrot on the left side of the vest. <laughs> The head of the parrot is on his shoulder and the tail reaching down to the fringe. There are two eye ends of peacock feathers hanging from the front two pieces of fringe. He has a lace-looking armband on his upper left arm with two feathers hanging down. He has a gold chain around his neck, a gold bracelet on one wrist, and a gold watch on the other. Almost possibly beyond Vibin. <laughs> These are some serious threads. The audience has a huge response to Venus's entrance. Jennifer is looking him up and down, which brings us to the line of the episode Are you earth, wind, or fire? <laughs> <laughs> Venus takes the comment in stride. I'm fire, baby, because women seek the heat. Venus walks over by Johnny. It's interesting. That's a, a cultural myth you're not denying. Because that one's true. <laughs> Herb points at Venus. Didn't I see you on Let's Make a Deal? Herb referenced the wild and wacky daytime game show Let's Make a Deal, where all the contestants dress in crazy costumes. We did a pretty extensive background on LMAD in our Dr. Fever and Mr. Tide podcast episode. Make sure to check it out. Jennifer's comment about Venus's outfit was referencing one of the most successful and influential Afro-pop bands ever assembled. Earth, Wind, and Fire was formed in Los Angeles in 1969 by Chicago-born musician, vocalist, and visionary Maurice White. By 1972, the lineup had changed and Maurice's brother, Verdine, was brought in on percussion. The name came from Maurice's astrological sign. Sagittarius is surrounded by earth, wind, and fire elements, but not the fourth element, water. EWF, as they're sometimes known, had a killer horn section and incredible stage show. They're considered one of the most successful bands in history, selling more than 90 million albums. They scored 30 Hot 100 hits between 1972 and 1983. Seven of those were top 10, including the number one smash, Shining Star. Shining Star. Although Maurice passed away in 2016, Verdine and vocalist Philip Bailey continue to lead the group. They perform and tour as Earth, Wind, and Fire to this day. And one of my favorite songs is an Earth, Wind, and Fire song. September. Yes. I know you're a big fan of that one. I love that one. at 
Herb and does a low whistle. Look at threads, huh? Herb looks very proud. You like? Venus tells Herb, yeah, he likes the look. Jennifer dressed me. She's good. Herb tells Venus he and Jennifer had lunch together. Man, you are working out. Herb tells Venus there are several things he still needs to work on. You know, minor things like a new personality, but uh, I'm coming along, right, Jennifer? Right. Oh, and uh, before I leave to visit a new client, I, I want you to know that Reaganomics is working. It's uh, supply-side economics, not trickle-down. And we wouldn't dream of taking all the money out of social programs and uh, giving it to big business. Just minor things. <laughs> <Yeah>. Personality. <laughs> Herb looks at Jennifer and asks... How's that? A little too good, Herb. <laughs> Herb and Jennifer leave the bullpen. Venus heads for the door to the studio hallway. I don't care how militant this interview is going to be. I'm going to come out looking good in your root suit from Monsanto. What did Johnny say? Root suit? Root suit is most likely a reference to the Roots miniseries. Johnny also said the Root Suit was by Monsanto. Today, you probably know Monsanto as the Agri-Monster Chemical Corporation based in the St. Louis area. They are the 199th largest company in the world. Today's Monsanto is known for ag products like Roundup and genetically modified corn and beans. This ag-only version of Monsanto has only been around since about 2000. Prior to that, Monsanto was a general chemical company, and they were into everything. Monsanto, among other things, manufactured DDT, developed styrene, created AstroTurf, and for a while owned Monsanto Textiles, where they made clothing from synthetic fibers. In your root suit from Monsanto. We transition to the lobby where Mr. Carlson is at Jennifer's desk. Andy is back by the file drawers reading the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Carlson is quietly singing to himself and tapping his pencil on a coffee cup. Jennifer and Herb enter the lobby. Jennifer has her arm hooked through Herb's as she clears her throat to get Mr. Carlson's and Andy's attention. Gentlemen, good afternoon to you. Andy looks over at Herb. Hey, Herb. Who are you trying to fool? I am going to fool the whole world, Travis. Watch me. Herb goes over to one of the chairs and sits. You know, Andy could have been a little bit nicer, I think. That was kind of... Who are you trying to fool? It is Herb. Come on. You see him every single day in those horrible suits, and suddenly now he looks like a GQ model. Jennifer walks over to Carlson and asks if there were any calls for her. Oh, just President Reagan. <laughs> Ronnie, I wonder what he wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Art tells Jennifer he was just kidding. He looks a little bit alarmed. You, you don't know the president, do you? Of course not. Jennifer reassuringly pats Art's arm. A man has entered the lobby from the main entrance, and Jennifer asks if she can help. The man leans on her desk and looks her right in the eyes. He's got one of the most hilarious opening lines ever. I'm Ted Jeffries, 555-4212. Call me, I mean it. (laughs) I love him from word one. Jennifer stands, a worried look on her face. Ted says he's looking for Herb Tarlick. Herb jumps up, his arm outstretched to shake Ted's hand. Hello, Ted. How finally nice to meet you face to face. Damn sporting of you to drop by like this. This version of Herb is just too weird. 
Sporting? Sporting. We know this is way out of character, but Ted doesn't. He thinks Herb's like this all the time. (laughs) Jennifer may have gone too far with the makeover. Ted has not taken his eyes off Jennifer since he entered the lobby. He continues to stare at Jennifer. Beautiful place you got here. Herb agrees and ushers him into Art's office. Can I get you a refreshment of some sort? Tea, perhaps. Are you American? (laughs) (laughs) Are you American? (laughs) Herb chuckles at this. Art smiles as he begins to follow them into his own office. The door slams right in Art's face. Jeffries is being played by Art Matrano. Art was born Harpo Messistrano in Brooklyn in 1936. His dad shortened the family's last name later. Art got his first acting gigs in 1960. He's a memorable character actor who notched 120 IMDb credits over a 40-year career. Art showed up on a lot of police hours in the 70s. Art could do comedy, but he was great in parts as both hard-nosed cops and sleazy criminals. He appeared in guest shots on Beretta, Starsky and Hutch, Streets of San Francisco, Ironsides, Police Story, and many more. Art was Captain Mauser in the Police Academy movies. He appeared in the movie They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, along with the woman who plays Carmen Carlson, Alan Ann McCleary. Art suffered a tragic accident in 1989. He fell off a ladder while working on the house, and he broke his neck in six places. He was initially a quadriplegic, but he did regain some use of his limbs later. He would walk with great difficulty and use a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Art wrote a one-man show called The Accidental Comedy, based on his experience. Proceeds from those performances raised more than $300,000 for wheelchairs and crutches to be given to spinal cord injury patients. Art died in September of 2021 at his home in Aventura, Florida, just two weeks before his 85th birthday. Are you American? (laughs) We go to the studio and find Les behind the mic while Venus is working with albums. And finally, this reporter joins the world press in congratulating the royal couple on the upcoming birth of their child. We'll be watching the dates very carefully. Les signs off and tosses the mic up over his head, where Venus is ready to catch it. Thanks, Les. Welcome, people, and stay with me while I take you home with a little help from Mr. Bob Marley. You'll always be with us. The song Real Situation begins playing over the air. And that tossing the mic thing, not very professional. And that would make a whole lot of noise on the air if he really did that. Les's news story is referencing the upcoming birth of Prince William, the firstborn son of Charles and Diana. William is in the direct line of ascendancy to the throne behind his father. Les's comment about watching the dates references the very quick pregnancy of Diana. William was born a mere 10 months and 21 days after the royal wedding. So no scandal, but it was a quick turnaround from altar to cradle. A fun fact about William, he was the first royal child to ever be born in a hospital. It's a tradition he and Kate have continued with their own kids. Venus is playing Real Situation, a cut from Bob Marley's 12th and final studio album, Uprising. Marley would die the following year. The single you may know from this one is Could You Be Loved? 
album peaks at number 45 on the U.S. Billboard album chart. It is, of course, a hit internationally. Uprising peaks at number three on the Swedish albums chart. And it's number one in New Zealand. Venus looks a little annoyed that Les is still in the studio. Take off, Les. Les asks him why. Venus says he's expecting a guy from a black magazine. I don't want you around explaining the black experience to him. (laughs) Les, Les tells Venus he has always let him chat with his black friends before. I enjoy it. Notice I didn't say Negro. Remember how well things went on (laughs) Venus and the Man. Scratch an almond, brother, and you have black. (laughs) Venus begs Les to please leave. He tells Les he's a little nervous about this interview. Black Life magazine is really hard-hitting. I mean, they're into being black. I mean, into it. Understand what I'm saying? No, I don't, Venus, but I can see you're upset, so I'll do what you say and leave. Venus thanks Les, looking relieved. It's always a pleasure to help a friend. Especially a black friend. He <laughs> grabs a cart like he's going to throw it at Les. We'll be watching the dates very carefully. Andy ushers a white gentleman into the studio. Is this our reporter from Black Life magazine? Hey, hold on a minute. It's our guest, Tom Dreesen. We wanted to know everything about how this role came about and how Tom got it. Although it seems like it could have been, this part was not written specifically for Tom. Hugh Wilson wrote that episode. And he said that they they said the moment that he wrote that episode, we got to find a white guy who's working for an all black magazine. And he comes to interview Venus Flytrap, you know, who, of course, my character is the only white guy in an all black situation. His character is black guy in a white situation. So without a doubt, they said, Tom Dreesen, if he's available. We were hoping it was Tim who called Tom to tell him about the part. But this is showbiz. The managers and money people have to be involved in everything. They went through my manager, but, you know, because Dan Wiley, who's passed away, they went through and said, we want Tom to do, you know, they want to negotiate. They've got to negotiate money. But they told my manager that Tim highly recommended me for the role, you know, that, that and for me. To do a scene again, to do anything with Tim again, you know, I love doing something with Tim that we do. And, and, uh, and we had so much fun with the role. Tom reported feeling the same sense of welcoming on set we've heard from so many guest stars. They welcomed me, like, with open arms. They were so nice to me. The table reason, and I, by the way, I was already a fan of the show. Even with the warm welcome and the great part, Tom worried about getting a little too familiar on Tim's turf. When we first got together, I mean, it was like a little apprehension because this was his show. You know, this was his show, and I wanted to compliment that as much as possible. But once we started talking together and running lines, it just boom, it just came. And 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 I I I knew how the character. I felt I knew how the character should be. I thought the writing was excellent. Tom would go on to do several TV and movie roles, but prior to this appearance, Tom's only other role as an actor had been a guest shot on a series in 1976. Tom had been doing a lot of stand-up in the late 70s and early 80s. Since the show was shooting in front of a live audience, we asked if it was weird for him not addressing the audience. It always does. And any time I've done film, you know, motion pictures, and I've, I've done, you know, I was in Spaceballs, and I, I did different things in movies throughout my career. I'm, I'm a stand-up comedian, first, last, and always. That's who I am. That's who I want to be. 
that's what I enjoy to be. I, be, I really believe this is what I put on this planet for. I love making people laugh. But anytime you do uh, shows and that fourth wall is there, it, it always is different. Venus is queuing up the next record, his back to them. Rick, this is Venus. Hey, bro, what's happening? Venus stands up, his hand out to shake Rick's. He doesn't even see Rick's face until he's in the middle of his greeting. Hey, blood, what it is? <laughs> Venus looks over at Andy, confused. Who's this dude? That's Rick Jesperson. Venus looks back to Rick. You're not black. No, I work for a black magazine. You do? Uh-huh. <laughs> Good observation there, Venus. I, I just love the the back and forth between the Tom and Tim and this whole yeah, this you, whole scene. You just get the sense of how comfortable they are with each other performing. Yeah, they work so well together. Andy excuses himself, telling them to have a good interview. Rick tells Venus he's really been looking forward to this. Venus says he has too. They launch into a hilarious back and forth that could only happen between two guys who worked together for years. I tell you though, you kind of threw me there. I'm sorry. I didn't know you'd be white. I thought this was a black station. It's a white station. I'm white. My magazine's black. I'm black. We're an equal opportunity employer. Same here. We're pretty militant about it, too. Me, too. Well, good. Let's talk. About what? How about race? I don't think that much about it. Me neither. Have a seat. Thank you. (laughs) They both slowly sit, keeping their eyes on each other. (laughs) Venus sits in the DJ chair, and Rick has a seat on the stool. And you notice we both sat down at the same time like that. No one directed that. We, we, we just, you know, but we had worked together six years on the road, almost six years on the road, you know. In Mr. Carlson's office, Herb is talking to Ted as Ted slouches on the couch, studying his fingernails. You know, I think one of the great follies of advertising is this trend toward tastelessness. <laughs> now, hold on a minute. Didn't Herb just tell us something entirely different? In pills? How many times have I told you the more tasteless commercials are, the better they work? Herb has a small breath spray bottle in his hand. He brings it up to spray into his mouth, but the hole is kind of facing off to the far side. It's the Craig T. Nelson gag from Out to Lunch. The spray goes out into the air beside his face. As Herb is struggling to project his new image... Ted, it turns out, is pretty proud of his sleazy roots. Do you realize that the last business I was in was made illegal? (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty bad. You're right on the edge of it becoming illegal. We get a great look at Ted's polyester suit here. It's a light gray with darker gray spots all over it. And I mean all over it, both coat and pants. He's wearing a shades of purple dress shirt underneath. He's got brown socks and what look to be brown hush puppies. I'm a slime bucket. I'm tasteless. I like it. <laughs> Ted knows who he is. Herb's staring into space, not quite knowing what to say or do. Hello. Ted waves his hand. He's trying to get Herb's attention. I'm tasteless. I like it. Back in the studio, Venus tells Rick to excuse him. He'll be done in a second. As the song ends, he turns to talk into the mic. All right. We're headed into the evening. It's 35 degrees, my children. Tonight's going to be kind of slippery, so drive carefully. This is WKRP with Venus. And love is on the rise. Brought to you by the pride of Atlanta, Mr. Peebo Bryson. 
His real name is Robert Peepo Bryson. Instead of Bob, he goes by Peebo. This cut comes from his seventh studio album called I Am Love. Bryson was born in Greenville, South Carolina in 1951, but as Venus said, he's lived most of his adult life in Atlanta. The hit from this album was a cut called Let the Feeling Flow. It would miss the top 40, peaking at number 42 on the U.S. Hot 100. Love is on the Rise was not released as a single. Bryson has made a name for himself in the music industry with his soulful ballads and love song duets with female performers. Bryson had a heart attack in 2019. He has since made a full recovery, and if you're interested, you can pick up tickets right now for the 71-year-old's 2022 tour. Venus turns to Rick and asks him to go on with what he was saying. I was saying I'm the only person of another color at the magazine. Do you have any idea what it's like to be that much in the minority? Venus knows exactly. He shoots a look at Rick. Must be rough. Rick tells Venus they are still fairly small in the market, somewhere in the middle. Hmm, like WKRP, maybe? (laughs) Rick tells Venus the place is really screwed up, but still a nice place to work. We're run by this great, kind-hearted guy. Well, his mother actually owns a thing. (laughs) But we're all loyal to him. For me, it's... It's kind of weird, though, everybody being one color and me being another. It gets in the way sometimes. How bad? Goes on to tell Venus there are a couple of really good-looking girls at the magazine. Whenever I'm around them, I feel like I always have to be careful, you know? Happy die. Rick continues telling Venus he's gotten to know and love these people. And I realize, and I know this is a cliche, but I realize that people are people, and you are who you are, and you link yourself to people you love, no matter what you are or what they are. This could practically be a line out of their book, Tim and Tom. Rick waves his hand, saying enough about him. He reaches into his jacket pocket and pulls out a small tape recorder. Let's talk about you. Rick sets the recorder on the counter next to the turntable. Venus begins talking, practically repeating Rick's speech right back to him. Well, uh, we're still a pretty small market, though, somewhere in the middle. Uh, place is pretty screwed up, but it's a nice place to work. We're still privately owned, but we're run by a great, kind-hearted guy. Uh-huh. You have a right-of-way for a Slim Whitman album? <laughs> So back out in the lobby, the door to Carlson's office opens, and Ted walks out, followed by Herb. Ted's hot. Uh, why don't you uh, sip your tea and, and sell your time to Gucci or somebody? Ted, baby, just wait a minute. Now, now, deep down inside, I'm just like you. Worse, even. You're too fancy for me. You don't understand the needs of a guy like me. I need to talk to a salesman who talk my language. Herb follows Ted as he walks to the door. No, 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 no. You don't understand. It's just the clothes. Look, look, look. Come back tomorrow, and I'll have a suit on that'll make you air sick. I mean, oh, man, such a tough choice for line of the episode this time around. A suit that will make you air sick was a really strong contender. Ted looks over at Jennifer, who is continuing to read. Now he's talking down to me. What do you think, I'm stupid? What's with you Harvard types with your little crocodiles on your shirts? I don't need you. Ted looks over at Jennifer with a great callback. I need you. Five, five, five. <laughs> Ted walks out the door and he's gone. I, I, I wanted more Ted. Oh, Ted was great. I liked him. 
Mr. Carlson asks Herb if he can have his office back now, and Herb tells him yes. I think you look nice, Herb. Thank you. Mr. Carlson goes into his office, and Herb walks over to Jennifer's desk. Well, what now? Jennifer tells him to call other advertising agencies. They like people who dress like that. Herb laughs, laughs at this idea. They already know me. Show them the new you. Let me put it another way. They already loathe me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they don't just know me, they loathe me. Poor Herb. So Ted was railing at people who wear crocodiles on their shirts. He's talking about the Lacoste crocodile which was mistakenly identified as the Izod crocodile in the 1970s and 80s. Izod was a British clothing brand going back to 1938. In the early 50s, they paired with shirt maker Lacoste and their crocodile logo. The shirts bearing the logo in the late 70s and early 80s were actually branded Izod Lacoste, but that was quickly shortened to Izod in the American market. The shirts bearing the distinctive crocodile became a staple of the preppy wardrobe in the early 80s. Izod Lacoste polo shirts with the crocodile were even listed in the 1980 publication, the official preppy handbook, as a must-have item. And did you have a crocodile shirt? I think I had a couple of them, and I also had a polo shirt with the guy on the horse, the little same thing in the breast okay. pocket area. I distinctly remember you wearing a members-only jacket oh, when we I, were dating. I had a silver waist-length members-only <laughs> jacket. I was very proud of that thing. What a preppy guy you oh, yeah. were. Jennifer gets a sickly look on her face. She knows she's in over her head on this one. Ben Herb... You are right, and I am wrong. Yeah? Yeah. And I want you to remember this moment, because it's never going to happen again. Jennifer tells Herb he is right, because he knows his client's territory better than she does. She tells him he knows how to present himself. I am wrong. Because I don't know the kind of people you associate with and probably never will. Jennifer knocks on her wood desk after saying this. <laughs> now, I want you to go down to the garage, look at all the cars, pick out the seat covers you like best and wear them home. <laughs> Herb thanks Jennifer. He heads to the bullpen door just as Venus and Rick enter the lobby. A callback to Venus's reference to a Volkswagen without seat covers somewhere. <laughs> Rick is talking. And they all say you're a pretty nice guy. What they don't say is for a white guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Venus nods his head. It's like he's listening to his own internal monologue. One last thing. <laughs> don't you feel silly dressed like that? <laughs> Venus looks down at his fringed suit, what Johnny had called the root suit. Yeah, just a little. All the hip dudes down at the magazine dress like... That guy. Points at Herb in his good-looking gray suit. Herb's <laughs> big smile suddenly turns into kind of a concerned, confused look. Rick exits. Tom told us when you leave the lobby through the main doors, you don't really go anywhere. Performers have to wait in the wings after exiting. Now remember this because we're going to get back to it in just a minute. Venus walks over by Herb. Herb asks how the interview went. Venus says it was okay. Talked about himself mostly. It's got an identity crisis. Yeah, same here. <laughs> Me too. I wonder if Slim Whitman has anything to do with this. Venus goes through the door to the bullpen as Herb walks over to Jennifer. What about you? Did you ever have an identity crisis? Jennifer tells Herb 
she doesn't think so. Although, sometimes, just for a second, I think I'm perhaps mentally unbalanced. Jennifer's sitting on her desk. She's leaning towards Herb as she's talking. Because all I think about are men. Jennifer gets her face really close to Herb's. Any man. As long as he's well-dressed. And I just want to, you know. Jennifer grabs Herb's shirt collar and pulls his face even closer. Herb's nodding his head in these quick, short nods. Be with him. Jennifer then lets go of Herb's shirt and her attitude suddenly changes. But then it goes away. It always does. Jennifer sits back down at her desk and picks up Ulysses. She's almost done with it. Herb's catching his breath. This really affected him. (laughs) He looks like he might pass out as he's gulping breath in big swallows. He finally straightens up. Knock on wood. (laughs) Herb knocks on Jennifer's desk a couple of times and then heads out the main doors. Now remember, Tom had a couple of minutes back there before Frank finished his part of the scene. You can't leave Tom alone like that. I leave first. I leave and I exit out this door. Well, then I had to stay there till the scene ended because he had, Frank Bonner had a scene with Lonnie, a real funny scene. And then he exited. Now, every time in rehearsal when he'd exit, I would be doing something stupid so he'd walk up. One time I had pants down around my ankle. <laughs> <laughs> Now he got what he was anticipating. What is this idiot going to be doing? So, okay. So the last time, I guess I could tell the last time I pretended when he came, I had my hand up against the wall and I pretended I was peeing up against the wall. (laughs) When he came off stage and he went, oh my God, you know. (laughs) Tom said the chance to do a scene with Tim on TV was like a dream. Do another scene with Tim, you know, after all those years. God, that was a. it was so, so much, so great to be with him again. And every time we get together, you know, I, 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 he lives in Virginia. I live in California. And we get together, first thing we hug. Hey, man, how you doing? Hey, brother, I love you, you know. Uh, and, and I do. He's, he's like a brother to me. You know? They'd never had that chance as Tim and Tom. They'd done talk shows, but not a real TV show where they got to perform together. It wasn't exactly what they'd wanted, but for Tom, it was still pretty great. After I saw it, uh, I mean, it gave me chills because I just, it was, the thing was, we always dreamed that we would be this on TV someday together. You know, we did a, some TV, but nothing like that. And and it was like, yeah, it happened. A huge thank you to Mr. Tom Dreesen for taking the time to talk to us about his experiences on WKRP and his friendship with Tim Reed. We talked to Tom for more than an hour. He was loaded with great stories about Tim and Tom and his early days as a stand-up. Be watching the podcast feed. We will be posting Tom's entire interview at the end of the series. That is going to do it for Changes of fun episode. A lot of fun with uh, Tim and the Tim and Tom connection just made it 
perfect. So Donna, what is up for next week? Next week, we'll be discussing I'll Take Romance. Herb sets Les up with a blind date through his latest client. It's a dating service called I'll Take Romance. Les enjoys the date, but doesn't realize I'll Take Romance is actually a front for prostitution. Hmm. <laughs> That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. You can find us on social media. Follow our Facebook page at WKRPCast. We're up over 3,100 followers on the Facebook page. For more WKRP fun, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRPCast for behind-the-scenes fun, full interviews, and more. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, WKRPCast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. May the good news be yours. The WKRPCast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!